Germany has had a strong operatic tradition since the birth of opera, and while composers like Wagner and Strauss contributed many well-loved operas with German libretti, can you name the composer credited with creating the earliest surviving German-language opera? If you know the composer, then can you also name the librettist or the opera title? Find out all this and more on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I admit that trivia question was a tough one, as the composer, librettist, and opera title are names we rarely hear about today. Composer Heinrich Schütz is often credited with being the first to compose an opera with German text, based on a libretto by Martin Oppitz. The opera was called Die Daphne, and it was a German adaptation of Jacobo Peri's Daphne, which originally featured Italian text. While this origin story is debated, the German opera tradition would go on to include masterpieces such as Beethoven's only opera, Fidelio, Mozart's Die Zauberflöte, and the Gesamtkunstwerk of Richard Wagner. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and in today's episode, composer, conductor, and lecturer, Victoria Bond, dives into the influential history and evolution of German opera throughout Western music. Ladies and gentlemen, a pleasure to be here this morning. One would think that German opera was written in German, but this was not always the case. In the 17th and 18th century, the aristocracy preferred Italian and even engaged a lot of Italian composers to write operas uh, for their use. So um, a lot of early German operas are written in Italian, and we will have a look and see which composers um, used both languages, Italian and German, uh, and which preferred to write in Italian. Now, Georg Philipp Telemann, who we know from, uh, from the Baroque period, solved this problem by writing the recitatives in German so that the populace could understand what was going on, and the arias in Italian. <laughs> so a bit of mixture uh, of languages. Now, most of us think of, of Handel mostly as a composer of oratorio, but it's interesting to note that he wrote 42 operas, 42 of them. Actually, one of them is going to be in the season of the Met Agrippina, and we're going to hear uh, or watch a video of that. Um, I'd like you to listen in particular to the language, because here is a German composer writing in Italian, and Handel, as you know, did most of his career in England. So a German composer writing in Italian for an English audience, uh, quite a mixture of cultures. Um, the music is familiar because, of course, as I say, we know his oratorios very well. Some of his other well-known operas were Rinaldo, 1711, and Giulio Cesare in 1724. So let's have a look at Georg Friedrich Handel, opera Agrippina. Thank you. 
course, you can see why Handel was such a popular opera composer, the way he sets the drama. A couple of things to notice. This is what is called an opera seria, which means it is based on um, serious material. It's not a, obviously not a comedy, and it is completely sung. There are arias and there are recitatives, and it is sung. The other German form was the Singspiel, where there was spoken dialogue. And usually the Singspiel were of more uh, lighter nature, comedies very often. Uh, the next one we'll see, of course, is a Singspiel, and I'll talk about that in a second. But um, one thing to notice also about this that is going to be characteristic of German opera in general, and that is the use of the orchestra. The orchestra was as important an element as the vocal lines, and you can hear that already in the Handel opera, where the orchestra is such an important partner to the singer, um, and really um, the orchestral music is of great variety and substance. So the next composer that I want to look at is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And what opera house would be complete without um, a, a, its fair offering of Mozart operas? Now, of course, Mozart traveled widely. And he wrote Zingspiele. He wrote um, opera seria. He wrote in Italian. And he wrote in German. He did, he did it all. He had it all together. Um, examples of the opera seria would be Clemenzo di Tito. Examples of the Zingspiel would be, um, we're going to see, of course, a, a scene from uh, the Magic Flute. Um, also, um, Bastien and Bastien. Operas in Italian, Le Nozze di Figaro, Don Giovanni. Operas in German, Die Entführung aus dem Serai. So Mozart was the complete opera composer. He was influenced by the Baroque. He was influenced by Italian opera. Um, and I love him. <laughs> I've conducted a lot of Mozart operas, and they are on such a high level, dramatically, musically, orchestrally, vocally, one cannot say enough about it. And any singer you talk to, when you mention the name Mozart, they say, ah, I love to sing Mozart. So let's see um, a scene from the Julie Taymor production of um, uh, Ma Magic Flute. And this is Papageno's aria. It is in English in this production because this production is geared towards young audiences. And you'll see a rather modern interpretation of Papageno. For sweetheart is Papageno's wish. A bland and buxom lover, now that's my favorite dish. Yes, that's my favorite dish. Oh, that's my favorite dish. I have just one tiny request. A dream girl to feather my nest. What else in the world would I mean? That's heaven on earth, yes indeed. A dream girl to feather my nest. What else in the world would I need? That's heaven on earth, yes indeed. Up your heaven indeed. 
Yes, you have it indeed. Sweetheart, this Papagano's wish A blonde and bulging lover Now that's my favorite dish Oh, that's my favorite dish Yes, that's my favorite dish So many girls flutter around me, but no buttercup has yet found me. My needs are so simple, so few. A drink brought by you or by you, but no buttercup has yet found me. My needs are so simple, so few. A drink brought by you or by you. Yes, say you brought my drink. No, a drink brought by you. A cuddly wife for sweetheart, this Papa Kato's wish. A blonde and buxom. Oh, but now that's my favorite dish. Oh, that's my favorite dish. Yes, that's my favorite dish. A heart drop to tickle and hug me. We live in my love nest so snuggly. I need only one little kiss. To make me go cuckoo with bliss. What I need, yes, I need a kiss. Oh, give me just one little kiss to make me go cuckoo with bliss. To go cuckoo with bliss. Let's go cuckoo with bliss. A totally charming production, and if any of you have youngsters that uh, you want to bring to the opera, the, this particular pro production is going to be done during the holidays, and it's uh, shortened um, uh, from the full-length production, made kid-size, so very wonderful production. Now, um, the composers Haydn and Schubert we always associate with instrumental music, with their symphonies, with the string quartets, Schubert, of course, with his um, huge body of songs, but both of them were opera composers as well. Haydn wrote 26 operas, and um, Schubert wrote 21. So most of these operas have not survived the literature, but we're going to have a look at one of them. The first opera that Haydn wrote is called Der Krumme Teufel, The Lame Devil, and it's a Singspiel written in German, as is his opera Philemon and Bautis, but the other 24 operas are all written in Italian. Schubert's operas include many Zingspiele, 
notably uh, Fiera Brass, Sacuntula, and Alfonso and Estrella. The Kartner Theater in 1822 commissioned operas from Schubert and Karl Maria von Weber in a drive to increase the number of German operas in the repertory. Schubert fulfilled his commission with Fiera Brass and von Webern with Eurante, which both of which we're going to sample. The Italian theater brought Rossini to oversee productions of several of his operas at the theater. Rossini's operas were so popular that Eurante unsuccessfully premiered in 1823, resulting in the shelving of, pl of plans to stage Fierabras. As a result, Schubert never saw the opera staged and never got paid for his work. Sad ending, but a wonderful opera. And here is a production with Jonas Kaufmann singing the title role, Fierabras, of Franz Schubert. Oh. 
with such brilliant vocal writing, one would wonder why these operas have not become more a part of uh, the standard repertory. Well, the fault lies basically in the librettos. Some of the librettos are beyond repair, and some of them, as you can see, are being updated and repaired. So hopefully, both the operas of Haydn and Schubert will again enter the repertory because musically and orchestrally and vocally, they are, they're brilliant. Karl Maria von Weber was one of the opera composers who really was at a pivotal point in German opera history. He was the director of the prestigious opera in Dresden from 1817 onwards, and he worked hard to establish a German opera uh, in Germany. Uh, since, as you, as you just heard, Rossini and the Italian opera composers were really the most popular with the aristocracy. The middle class wanted opera in German, but the aristocracy wanted it in Italian. So Marie, uh, um, uh, Karl Maria von Weber worked very hard to establish a German opera in, uh, in German. Of course, his most successful and popular opera is Der Freischutz, which was written in 1821 in Berlin and led to performances all over Europe. Although it is related to opera seria because it is based on a dark and mysterious legend, nevertheless, it is also related to Singspiel as it uses spoken dialogue. In 1823, Weber composed his first and only full-length through-written opera, Eurante, which anticipates the early romantic operas of Richard Wagner. During his term as director of the Vienna State Opera, Gustav Mahler mounted a new production of Eurante in 1903. Despite amendments to the libretto by Mahler, he described the librettist as a poetess with a full heart and an empty head. <laughs> so as you can see, even for a great opera composer such as uh, Weber, uh, the libretto was an issue in this opera, Oirante. But here is a magnificent performance sung by Jesse Norman.
certainly a wonderful addition to the operatic repertoire, even if the libretto is hopeless. <laughs> we certainly know plenty of operas in the uh, Italian repertoire that have uh, less than believable uh, librettos. Um, incidentally, apropos Mahler and Weber, I conducted uh, a, a fragment of a, a Weber opera called Die Drei Pintos, the Three Pintos, that Mahler actually um, orchestrated, which was very interesting. So Mahler recognized uh, Weber's great contribution to the operatic literature and to instrumental music as well. Of course, he was a wonderful instrumental composer. Next, we come to Ludwig von Beethoven, who, as you know, wrote only one opera, and it gave him no, no shortage of grief. He wrote, of course, three Leonore overtures, and then he wrote yet another overture when neither of, of those three were the right ones to begin the opera. And even though the subject of Fidelio is very serious, it's after all, about a political prisoner. It's not a comedy, but it is a Zingspiel. And I'd like us to pay particular attention to the relationship of setting words from now on. Because in the beginning, we had a very clear distinction between opera seria, where the words, everything was sung, where there was a clear distinction between recitative, which was accompanied but still sung, and aria. Um, and the Zingspiele, which had spoken dialogue and sung arias. So now the distinction between those is going to get more and more blurred. And in uh, Beethoven's Fidelio, as I say, it is an opera seria, but it is also a Zingspiele. So what is it? Is it fish or fowl? It is something new, and of course, as we know of uh, Beethoven's other works, he was somebody who forged new paths in all directions. So let's have a, a, a look at this scene. Uh, again, the ever-popular Jonas Kaufmann um, singing uh, in, in des Lebens from Fidelio.
As um, uh, I mentioned, Beethoven had endless grief with this opera, and the premiere performance was no exception. It was premiered in Vienna during the time when Vienna was occupied by Napoleon's troops. And um, most Viennese, except for a few diehard Beethoven uh, supporters, fled the city. And so the city was full of French officers. And at the opening night, um, the audience was not pleased with the opera. As you can imagine, the French who were used to operas that had a ballet in the middle and a light-hearted um, subject matter, um, an opera about somebody in prison and all of this darkness, this was not appealing to a French audience at all. And they stayed away in droves for the second performance. It was the theater was practically empty. And Beethoven, of course, was miserable because um, his earnings were dependent, as you might not have known, on the box office. Um, and when he went to the intendant and said, 
why am I only getting so much money? And the intendant said, well, look at, look at the size of the audience. And he says, what about Mozart? And he said, well, Mozart wrote for the audience. So big difference here. Beethoven wrote for the ages. And of course, his, both Mozart and Beethoven's music lives for the ages. But um, this opera, which has such a profound uh, darkness and seriousness to it, also uses spoken dialogue. So here we are with an opera that has both qualities of uh, opera seria and zingspiel. Um, the next composer that I'd like to talk about is uh, Robert Schumann. We also know Schumann primarily for his uh, instrumental music and for his songs. And he wrote an opera called Genoveva. And yours truly had the distinction of conducting the American, North American premiere in, uh, when was that? <laughs> I think it was 1987. Yes, 1987 with uh, Belcanto Opera Company. He wrote the opera and it was performed in Leipzig, which was his home in 1850. And again, it's a libretto that has, shall we say, weaknesses, but the music is absolutely sublime. And the overture is done quite frequently. But here is an aria from Genoveva of Robert Schumann. dramatic opera, as you can hear. So now we come to Richard Wagner. 
and a lot of innovations, Wagner building on the operas of Weber and also the instrumental music of Beethoven. Um, the idea of a leitmotif was not entirely new to Wagner, as many uh, opera composers have used fragments that identify characters, situations, moods, but Wagner brought it to a new level. And uh, we will see how the leitmotif has influenced composers ever since that time. So a leitmotif being a short group of notes with a very recognizable outline, musical outline, a rhythmic pattern, a harmonic pattern, sometimes just a collection of two or three notes, but something very recognizable. And uh, something that can organize an entire opera, or as it were, with the ring. Um, the other thing that Wagner really was extremely innovative is in the use of the spoken, sung word. It's not Sprechgesang yet, it's not Sprechstimme, but uh, because Wagner was his own librettist, and because the music is a continuous flow of aria, and I can't call it recitative, it really isn't, it was also something that was very innovative. Now, Wagner himself was quite a revolutionary. Um, the Der Fliegende Holländer was written before his most revolutionary period. I'm talking about a political revolutionary in addition to a musical revolutionary. He handed out uh, leaflets. Um, he was even jailed briefly. So his uh, history is very fascinating. And you can see um, the reflections of it in his revolutionary ideas of music, the Gesamtkunstwerk, something that encompassed both the visual and the musical elements. And just a little survey of his um, operas, uh, he considered that his operatic career really began with Der Fliegende Holländer in 1843. This is followed by Tannhäuser, Lohengrin, Tristan und Isolde, Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg, and Der Ring des Nibelungen, and then finally Parsifal. So the clear distinction between the spoken and the sung word is something um, that is really, those differences are being erased. The inheritor um, of the Wagner mantle, mantle, <laughs> speaking too much German, the Wagner mantle um, really went to Richard Strauss. He is considered to be, by many, the heir of Wagner's operatic tradition. He lived from 1864 to 1949, and I'm going to be talking about Der Rosenkavalier this afternoon. But his earlier operas, uh, Zalome and Elektra, are really the most revolutionary ones that he wrote. Um, Der Rosenkavalier was um, looking back to the past whereas Zalome and Electra were something that were, had not been heard before. So I thought we would uh, look at something from Zalome, um, which had a very scandalous, controversial libretto. Um, and, uh, well, let's have a look at it, and I'll talk about it afterwards. <laughs>
Now, Strauss did not make up this story. <laughs> it is based on an Oscar Wilde play, which was equally scandalous when it uh, first opened. Um, but as you can see, this is Strauss, the total revolutionary. And he lived through both, both world wars. And um, what we're going to look at this afternoon is Der Rosenkavalier. And some people said, oh, he's sold out, because look how 
um, revolutionary he was with Salome and Electra, and Der Rosenkavalier is all about domestic life. <laughs> but of course, he used his experience, his brilliance, his genius um, in the service of an opera whose subject is nostalgic, melancholy, and extremely profound as far as the human relationship. So we, we will get into Rosenkavalier in much greater depth uh, this afternoon. But now, for some contrast, Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> I thought that would be a good, uh, a good antidote to Zalame. Now, I was not aware of the history of, um, uh, of Hansel and Gretel, but I thought you would find this very interesting because Engelbert Humperdinck um, uh, began work on the opera in 1890, and he composed four songs to accompany a puppet show that his nieces were giving at home. Then using a libretto by his sister, rather loosely based on the fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm, he composed a zingspiel of 16 songs with piano accompaniment and connecting dialogue. By January 1891, he had begun working on a complete orchestration. The opera premiered in 1803 under the uh, baton of none other than Richard Strauss. So great connection there. Um, with its highly original synthesis of Wagnerian techniques and traditional German folk song, Hansel and Gretel was an instant and overwhelming success. So consider this a palate cleanser. And let's hear one of the most beautiful arias from Hansel and Gretel.
Abensegen from Hansel and Gretel. Beautiful, uh, obviously very much related to folk music. It sounds like a melody that has always been there. Now, the Singspiele was not finished, and it, it uh, appears in operettas. Operettas were very popular, particularly in Vienna, and they featured comedy, uh, memorable melodies, and spoken dialogues. And two of the most popular operetta composers and operettas are Johann Strauss, Die Fledermaus, and Franz Lehár, Die Lustige Witwe, The Merry Widow. Also very interesting to us as Americans how influential the operetta was to the American musical comedy, still in existence today, happily, and still very influenced by the operetta. Um, the idea of having light, comedic plot with memorable melodies. Of course, that has also been expanded uh, into the American musical theater and such works as um, Stephen Sondheim's um, music theater works. I don't really think you can call them musicals in the sense, although I guess Follies you could call a musical. That continues very much the tradition of uh, the operetta. The early 20th century um, opera composers include Franz Schrecker, Die Ferne Klang, and Hans Fitzner, Palestrina, Alexander von Zemlinski, Der Zwerg, The Dwarf, and in the uh, early 20th century, uh, Arnold Schoenberg's theatrical works, Erwartung and Die Glückliche Hand, expanded the chromatic harmony of Wagner and Strauss, leading to the 12-tone technique, which Schoenberg used in his opera Moses and Aaron. Now here we get a real blurring of the spoken and the sung text, because um, Schoenberg invented, as it were, something called Sprechgesang, or Sprechstimme, in which the uh, singer was instructed to half sing, half say the words. He um, wrote them uh, at pitches with rhythms with an X on them. And I had a very interesting experience. I was in London, and I went to an exhibit of um, paintings of Arnold Schoenberg, who was also a wonderful painter. And they had a particularly unusual exhibit of um, something that looked like music. What it was, was Schoenberg, when he first came to America, he was asked to give a speech. And his English was not that strong at that point. So what he decided to do was he would write out the entire speech um, as Sprechgesang, in which he would be able to have the inflection of English um, and the rhythm of English and have it notated in musical notation. So a uh, very interesting application of this. So Moses and Aaron is his opera, his ma major main opera. And um, the characters in Moses and Aaron um, is very appropriate for Sprechstimme or Sprechgesang because um, Aaron was the one who was more articulate as a speaker. And Moses says, I am not a good speaker, I'm not a good leader. And so Schoenberg set Moses as someone who doesn't sing, but he does sh uh, speak on pitch with this Sprechgesang. So let's hear a bit of this production um, from the Boma Symphonica. So must I ihm ein Bild zu schauen geben. 
von einem Wort. Deinem Wort waren sonst Bilder und Wunder, die du missachtest, versagt. Und doch war das Wunder nicht mehr als ein Bild, als dein Wort mein Bild zerstörte. Gottes Ewigkeit vernichtet, Göttergegenwart. Das ist kein Bild, kein Wunder. Das ist das Gesetz. Das Unvergängliche, sag es, wie diese Tafeln, vergänglich in der Sprache deines Mundes. Bestehen, bezeuge den Gedanken des Ewigen. Angst du nun die Allmacht des Gedankens über die Worte und Bilder. Ich verstehe es so. Dieses Volk soll erhalten bleiben. Aber ein Volk kann nur fühlen. Ich liebe dieses Volk. Ich liebe es und will es erhalten. Um des Gedankens willen. Ich liebe meinen Gedanken und lebe für ihn. Auch du würdest dies Volk leben, hättest du gesehen, wie es lebt, wenn es sehen, fühlen, hoffen darf. Was es nicht fühlt. Du erschütterst mich nicht. Es muss den Gedanken erfassen. Es lebt nur deshalb. Ein beklagenswertes, ein Volk von Märtyren wäre es dann. Ein Volk erfasst mehr als einen Teil des Bildes, das den fassbaren Teil des Gedankens ausdrückt. So mache dich dem Volk verständlich auf ihm angemessene Art. Ich soll den Gedanken verfälschen? Lass mich ihn auflösen. So we're in a new realm here in several counts. One of them, the, the relationship between the word uh, spoken or sung. And here the line is blurred because, as you can hear, he's almost like an actor speaking. 
However, the composer has much more control over the way uh, the words are spoken, the rhythm they're spoken in, the way the orchestra interacts with the words. And so this is a whole new level of, uh, of, the, of the word. Also, as I'm sure you can hear, harmonically, this is a new world also, because this is the world of 12-tone. Um, uh, Wagner and Strauss were becoming more and more chromatic. And what do I mean by chromatic? Here is a major slow, a major scale, minor scale, chromatic scale. Is all of the all of the notes black and white, um, and twelve tone was a way of organizing um, the notes, the pitches, in a way that they did not repeat until the tone row of twelve notes was completed. Now Berg, which we're going to look at next, was a pupil of Schoenberg, and in his early works, um, they are quite romantic in character. Um, using traditional harmony, but he did adapt the 12-tone method in, um, in Wozzeck, but not entirely. Uh, in other words, he did not stick exactly to the path that all 12 pitches had to be repeated before they were sounded again. He used it as a scaffolding, and um, uh, both Wozzeck and to some extent Lulu have become part of the um, operatic repertoire. Now, in terms of how Berg uses Sprechgesang, um, I found a very interesting video of Mark Elder, the conductor, talking about the ways that uh, Berg uses um, spoken, half-sung, sung, and how meticulous Berg was in indicating exactly what he wanted, the way he wanted these words to be spoken sung um, and in many various degrees. So let's have a look at a bit of this lecture. One siehst du den lichten Streif da über das Gras hin, wo die Schwämme so nachwachsen. There's a long silence between them, and the orchestra plays these magic, thin, glassy sounds. And then he talks about how in the evenings you can see a head rolling around. One man saw it, thought it was a hedgehog. So that last little bit, lovely, Jeff, thanks, that last little phrase that he sang, he suddenly had to change, he had to remember that Wozzeck must now sing completely with his voice, even though it's marked quiet. So the composer is saying, you can use your loud voice fully, you can lose your quiet voice fully, 
and I want you to have all the palettes of a painter with your voice. Just do, just do the line about the hedgehog. Eagle is the German for hedgehog. Somebody picked it up, this head, one evening, because he thought it was a hedgehog. Hobin einmal einer auf. Hobin einmal einer auf. Meint es wär ein Yeah, good, great. See, this is really, really difficult. The first half of it, Hobin einmal einer. Suddenly, he says he wants it half sung. So he says, you can come in like it was speaking, but you have to somehow find the, vo the whole music, the notes, clearly. But you mustn't use your whole voice. That's going to come in the next bar when you sing drei Tage und drei Nächte, yeah, for three days and three nights. Yeah. So all the, the three different ways of, of doing it, apart from speaking it, are in this tiny little bit, which is why I wanted Jim to do it for us. Now, Jim, where it goes on to the half sung on ein auf, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, hob ihn einmal ein, those five syllables, must be sprechgesang. Yeah? As if Wozzeck starts by saying, somebody dared to pick it up. And he comes to a pitch when he finishes the phrase, pick it up. Einer auf. He thought it was a hedgehog. But it mustn't be sung, and yet you must be clear that he's singing notes that the composer wanted. Do you see what I mean? It mustn't be like sung like a cello. It's hard, isn't it, Jim? How yeah. do you cope with that? Uh. <laughs> no, come on, tell them. Uh, I suppose it's sort of, uh, well, practice, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really trying to be disciplined and, and learn it as, as accurately as possible. Uh. Other composers after World War II were Bernard Alois Zimmermann, who continued Berg's legacy of Wozzeck with an opera called Die Soldaten, and Aribert Reimann's Shakespeare Lear. But what I'd like to look at is a brief interview with the composer Stockhausen, who has written an opera called Licht that takes several days. It sort of outdoes the, the ring in his own opinion, but it takes several days to perform. At any rate, here is Stockhausen in a most unusual interview. In 64, I became more and more daring in what I was giving my co-players and myself as graphic material. There was the score of procession, which consists only of plus and minus signs and equal signs. I like to dare things sometimes, which uh, make me feel I didn't succeed and which need perhaps another type of musician. All that can be said in words is that when we experience this music, the best state that we might reach is that each of us feels like one of these sounds in the universe. I think it is important that we trust ourselves, that we are instruments ourselves, and that cosmic vibrations create a sound through us. The word improvisation is wrong. I would say it's a type of intuitive music to play out of the head, so to speak. 
should not uh, be eliminated. It should have a chance. So in my works I have gone from one extreme to the other, from the extreme determinism sometimes to extreme indeterminism. The word itself is magic, but uh, they don't know exactly how to prepare themselves for that. It needs uh, to become alive uh, music which is as rich in dynamic uh, changes as in the other uh, qualities. Do you now discuss this with your performers? <laughs> Better not. Better not. No. Why not? Because I, I'm still in it. I feel that uh, there is something like religion in what uh, Mr. Stockhausen created. Oh no, you can't do that with me. I'm here. The sound has to come from here. So with Stockhausen, we are in the realm of the avant-garde and all of the uh, qualities that we have come to know uh, belong to opera, such as storyline, um, melody, harmony, counterpoint, form. Um, those have all been changed with the avant-garde. That does not mean that at the, in 2019, we only have avant-garde opera. I like to think that the history of opera is not necessarily one that goes from lesser to better. That the whole range of what we have today is something that we can appreciate um, and with great variety and um, the, depending on the taste of the listener, an ability to choose from many different styles. We live in a time where we have access to all of this literature on YouTube, on our phones, on uh, film, on the Met On Demand. It's really quite amazing. I don't think there's ever been a time in history when we have the entire scope of the operatic literature up to this date um, available for us to listen to. So I think it's a very rich time. When I first was starting out as a composer, to write music that was tonal and that had a melody to it was something to be, you sort of held your nose and you didn't uh, uh, acknowledge that it had any value. But I think today, with the operas that are being written today and with our greater acceptance of multiple styles, um, I think that is no longer the case. One can have a composer such as Stockhausen, and I have a couple of uh, living composers to mention, um, one of them being the only woman on the list, Olga Neuwirth, who wrote an opera called Lost Highway, uh, based on a David Lynch film. Um, so there are many composers today who are writing, as you'll, uh, those of you who uh, go to see Akhenaten, who are writing tonal music. Philip Glass's music is very, very tonal. Um, and a lot of German composers who are writing tonal music as well. Well, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. That was composer, conductor, and lecturer Victoria Bond discussing the rich musical history and tradition of German opera.
To learn more about All Things Opera, check out our archive of over 150 podcast episodes, and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.